The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found once again in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at verse through 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I'll begin reading at verse just to get the context. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Please join me in prayer one more time. Lord, you, you are aware that we are but dust. And you know our need. And so in light of our great need, Lord, we ask that you would work through your word, that you would minister to our hearts. You know the needs of each, each soul in this room. Lord, you know our sin. Lord, you know our, uh, our error. You know our confusion. You know the trials that we face. Lord, you know what no one else in this room can know. And because of that, I pray that you would minister to each soul this morning. That you would work in power. Lord, even as Paul had prayed, that you would work according to your glorious might. And that you would bear much fruit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began our study of Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And we noted that in his prayer, he prays for two things primarily. If you look again at verse 9, he first of all prays that the Colossians be filled with a knowledge of God's will. And that as they understand God's will, that that would then allow them to walk in a manner that pleases him. So those are really the two requests. But then Paul goes on to explain what that walking in a manner that pleases him looks like. What does it look like to have a worthy walk, a walk worthy of the gospel? And he notes that it's Christians would bear fruit in every good work. They would increase in the knowledge of God, be empowered with all power. And then fourthly, which is what we'll look at today, he prays that they would, he asks that it would be characterized by joyful thanksgiving. And so Christians should be characterized by thankfulness. That should be something that defines us, is what Paul is suggesting. In fact, he writes in his letter to the Thessalonians, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Notice this. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Later in Colossians chapter 3, he writes, Be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, 
singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this this life of thankfulness that should characterize believers is in contrast to that which characterizes unbelievers. Because as Paul writes in Romans 1, unbelievers are marked in their spiritual descent by a lack of giving thanks to God. First, Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And that's the beginning of that downward spiral into sin that Paul records in that chapter. And as believers, we know that there are thousands of reasons that we could give thanks to God. But in this prayer that Paul writes for the Colossians, he identifies four things which we can be thankful for. And that will be the subject of our message this morning. Now, although many English translations have the phrase with joy uh, connected with verse 11, connecting it with all endurance and perseverance, it's probably better to understand with joy as modifying giving thanks in verse 12. Now you've been, I say that because you'll note this pattern of the prepositional phrase modifying the participle in the previous clauses. You'll have to see that as you look in, in your Bibles. Notice says bearing fruit in every good work, being strengthened with all power, and then giving thanks with joy would be the progression. And the point being is that not only should we be thankful, we're commanded to be thankful in First Thessalonians, but that our thankfulness should be characterized by joy. This means that our thankfulness shouldn't just be performed out of obedience, out of obligation, but it be, should be something that actually uh, is Uh, inherent within us. We're compelled to by what we understand. It comes from the depths of our souls. All right. Well, well instructed children are taught when they receive a, a gift for Christmas or their birthday to say thank you to whoever gives them the gift. And then as they get older, they're instructed maybe to write thank you notes. Now they can do that just simply out of, uh, a discipline of etiquette knowing it's just the right thing to do. It's also possible they, should, they could ser- sincerely be giving thanks. They really appreciate the gift that they got. And they're writing that note with thankfulness. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, that they're giving thanks with joy. Christians, Paul says, should be giving thanks with joy. Right? Contrast the, the, the thankfulness that's just a discipline of etiquette with the compulsion of joy that when one receives something that they've always wanted and that they've actually just given up hope of ever receiving. And then they get it. Some of you might remember or have seen some of the videos towards the end of the Vietnam War of POWs returning to their families. Wives and children who had not heard from their fathers or or husband for years, three years, five years, six years, without a word. One day, get a a phone call. He's alive. He's coming home. 
come to San Diego on such and such a day and you will meet him. And when they see their husband and their father, who they thought was dead, and they hold him, the thankfulness that comes from their heart is not obligatory. It's not a discipline of etiquette. It's full of joy. And that's the thankfulness that should characterize our thankfulness, the joy that should characterize our thankfulness. And the news that, that we have received in the gospel far surpasses news that your lost spouse is still alive. As Paul explains, you, Christian, have been qualified to receive a heavenly inheritance. He says, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, as is seen in the English word qualified, the root of that word is to have the to have quality or to pass qualifications to receive something in order to get a driver's license. Teenagers need to show that they're qualified to drive by passing a driver's test in order to practice medicine. Physicians have to go to medical school, pass medical school and pass their board exams. In order to qualify to be a Navy SEAL, a sailor has to prove their quality by making it through buds. And the higher the expectation, the more stringent the qualifications, and the more inherent the quality needs to be proved. So just consider what quality must be proven in order for a person to receive a heavenly inheritance. What are the qualifications? To receive an inheritance in heaven. Well, first of all, in order to receive an inheritance, you have to be part of the divine family. Inheritances don't belong to non-family members. Secondly, a person needs to be holy. Because without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. By nature, the inheritance is in the light, as it says. Right? God is light and in him there's no darkness. It's in the presence of God. The inheritance is in the presence of God. If you are not holy, you cannot be in the presence of God without being consumed. So who is qualified to dwell in the presence of God? Psalm 15 takes up this question. O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And so these are the two qualifications in order to receive a heavenly inheritance. And, and what's obvious is that none of us qualify. None of us is born of divine lineage. None of us lives perfectly holy lives. But Jesus changed all that. Turn just a couple books over to Ephesians chapter 1. And notice what he says in verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he for adoption 
to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Right? Even though none of us came close to qualifying for an inheritance, through faith in Christ, God has qualified us to receive what by right only belongs to him. We have received something that only Jesus deserves. So it brings up this question, what, what exactly is this inheritance that we're entitled to, that we're going to receive on account of our faith in Christ? I have no idea. Be, Peter tells us that it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. But, but Scripture really doesn't explain much beyond that. But I think we should consider this question with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he compares the sufferings of this life to the glory that awaits us. He writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And then later in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, where Paul describes this heavenly vision that he received, he says this. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. To even attempt to describe the inheritance that we're going to receive would be to degrade it. That's why it's not described. It's because we, we can't even come close to fathoming how amazing it's going to be. All believers will receive an inheritance of light along with the rest of the saints because Christ has delivered us from darkness. That's that's the second reason Paul gives thanks. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now, light in Scripture, as is obvious, is a metaphor for truth, revelation, understanding, clarity, hope. And just like darkness signifies being blind, deceit, folly, evil, despair, and this, this metaphor works because light shows us what's really there. In the darkness, we, do, we don't know what we're touching. If, if, if we're in pitch black darkness and we feel something soft and cuddly come up and snuggle with us, we might think that we're petting a kitten when in fact we're actually petting a rat. Right? Somebody turns on the lights and ah, it would be, we don't know. And that's true of Those who walk in darkness, they don't necessarily know where they're going. They don't know what's in front of them. They might think they're on the right path, but are about to walk off a cliff. And we we all know what it means to be afraid of the dark. We know the hope and peace that comes when the light is turned on. There's, There's a reason that horror movies are dark and that children's movies are full of bright colors and singing and light music. Light and darkness are perfect metaphors because they're not merely objective concepts, things that we can see. 
light and darkness are actually are all go beyond just what we can see. They're things that we can feel. In fact, in Exodus ten twenty one, Moses said, "Stretch out your sorry." The Lord said to Moses, "Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt." There is a there is a darkness that you can feel, and likewise light that can be felt. Now, and notice the the phrase Paul uses is the domain of darkness. That, that word for domain is exousia, usually translated power. The phrase reflects the reality that Satan is the tyrannical ruler of this world. He is the authority. He is the one who has power over the lives of unbelievers. And he exercises his authority and dominion over them through sin. All right, Jesus said in John eight thirty four, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. He goes on to explain to unbelievers, John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. In John three nineteen, it says that light has come into the world, referring to Christ and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil in their heart. Unbelievers love the darkness. Even though they may hate its consequences, they love the darkness because they love their sin. They're slaves of sin. Now, an unbeliever might say, I'm not a slave of anybody. I'm not a slave of sin. I do what I want to do. I'm my own master. I'm the captain of my own fate. But just take a moment and, and honestly consider your state. That you're always hungry but never satisfied. Even if, even if you are satisfied for a moment, that satisfaction is quickly gone and you're left feeling hungrier and emptier than you did before. And you often assume that if you could just get what you currently desire, then you'd be satisfied. But even though, when you, even though you have gotten things before in the past, those things haven't satisfied you yet. Whether it's sex, or marriage, children, getting a promotion at work, athletic achievements. They haven't satisfied. You're still hungry. You also can't deny yourself. You can't help but being self-focused. Even in the good things that you want to do, you're only really motivated to do them unless there's some benefit that you see in doing them for yourself. Even your most magnanimous things have some self-interest behind them. And there are specific sins that you're ashamed of and that you hate that you do. Every time you commit them, you're ashamed. And yet, almost any time they call, you come. And you give in. And then after they've ensnared you again and they slap you around in your shame, you still keep coming back. And you're continually reminded of your sins and your failures, especially at night. And, and you can't rid yourself of the memories. You can't rid yourself of the guilt and the shame that you feel. 
And you're afraid of many things, although you may not admit it. And you seek to quench these fears by distracting yourself with working more or with entertainment or with alcohol or drugs or some other means of taking your mind off what you know to be true about you. Things that you hope nobody ever finds out. And you don't know what to believe. You don't know who you can trust. You're not impressed with the answers people give. And and so in the end, you're just going to trust your own intuition, even though you've been wrong countless times before. And these are all aspects of being enslaved to the prince of darkness. You're a puppet in his hands. Even though you think you have autonomy and freedom. And yet you're miserable on the inside. And for all of these reasons and more, Christ died on the cross. And then he sent his followers to proclaim the good news that to any person who would believe in him, who would trust in his work for their salvation, they could be freed from sin and forgiven for all of those things that they have done for which they're ashamed. This is what Jesus told Paul when he commissioned him as as an apostle. He said, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's why Jesus sent Paul, so that people would know they don't have to be slaves of sin any longer. They could be freed and forgiven forever. And so Paul gives thanks. He also gives thanks because we have been transferred to his heavenly kingdom. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And this emphasizes the contrast from our former slavery to Satan and sin to our present citizenship as those who live under the kingdom of God. No longer is Satan our authority and ruler. Now, Christ himself is our authority and ruler. We've gone from being slaves to sons, from darkness to light, from being under a tyrannical rule that is defined by deception and evil to one being defined by unconditional love. And Paul reiterates this because he knows that such a miracle can be overlooked. Because We don't necessarily feel or recognize the reality of what's taken place. When we get saved, we don't necessarily feel anything. And even after we've been saved, we don't fully recognize what we were saved from and then what we have been offered. That's something we grow in our knowledge of over time. Most of us, we, we don't realize how bad things were actually in our lives until after we've been saved for years. Some of you have been on bad sports teams. that you just couldn't wait for a new one or in bad work situations. Or in a bad military unit where you had 
classes full of students that were just awful. And you just couldn't wait for a change. I remember being in a miserable job to the extent that I prayed that I would get sick because I, <laughs> I was a believer. And so I, I didn't want I wanted to have a legitimate excuse not to go into work. I would rather have been extremely sick than to have to go to work. Eventually, I got another job offer and I was ecstatic. In fact, the new job that I got was actually working for abused children who'd been taken out of their homes. And the thing about abused children is that almost all of them have no idea how bad their situation really is. Because that's all they've known. They're used to the abuse. They, they expect to get beaten when dad starts drinking. They, they're not surprised that they're not going to get dinner because their mom is strung out on drugs on the couch. They don't realize how bad things are because they've never known anything different. And similarly, we can be ignorant to how miraculous our transfer was from darkness into God's kingdom. And so if our salvation really was so miraculous and so astonishing, why is it that Christians struggle to be thankful? Because we do. Well, I think the, the easy answer is, well, we're sinful. That's, that's true. That's part of it. Right? We struggle to give thanks as a sin. But I think there's some other reasons behind it. First of all, we still live in a world defined by darkness. Right? Even though our, we are now citizens of heaven, we still live in this world that is defined by darkness. And we must sojourn in this land of darkness for a while. And that hinders our ability to see things as they really are. And secondly, because of that, we're blind to how bad things really are in the world, especially here in America. Most of us are ignorant of the horrendous evils that people have to face every day because of hunger or abuse and suffering poverty, fear, right? These, these things are a normal part of life for most of the people in the world. Most of us, we live fairly comfortable lives and the, the things that upset us and get us angry are relatively silly, right? Our latte wasn't made the way we want, right? What we call third world, or sorry, first, third, yeah, first world problems. Thirdly, spiritual realities are beyond, are beyond our level of sensory experience. Right? We, we don't see what's really going on in this world on a spiritual level. Like Job. Like there was no way he could have understood what God was up to in allowing him to suffer so awfully. Right? We, likewise, we have no clue what's going on around us. Sometimes we get little insights that we can make guesses, but we really have no idea. Like, we hardly know what's going on in the geopolitical world. We don't know what's going on in politics. We make guesses, but we don't know if even the news sources we have are telling us the truth or just manipulating us with propaganda. And we don't know what's going on. 
all the more so spiritually. We don't see Satan or angels or Jesus right now. Right? We might recognize their presence or power, but we don't see them. And fourthly, we struggle to give thanks because we have a dim understanding of, of how dire our circumstances were. We don't realize the danger we were actually in as unbelievers. Even, even the most vivid imagination cannot conceive of how awful hell really is. Like Dante, it's gross. It's pretty terrible. But it's still his imagination. Our lives were defined by sin and rebellion, uh, rebellion against a holy God. We have no idea of the danger that we were in. So even, if, even if we can accept that reality by faith now, we can't fully appreciate it because it's beyond our sensory experience. Right? We don't see hell. We certainly have never experienced it. We might have experienced awful suffering in this life. But it's not hell. And it's certainly not eternal. So if you struggle to give thanks, there are legitimate reasons why. But nevertheless, as these things are revealed to us, they should increase our thanksgiving. As we grow in our understanding of reality, we sh- our lives should be more and more marked by thankfulness. The fourth thing that Paul notes is that we should give thanks for is for redemption and forgiveness. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Right? Redemption and forgiveness. These are the the two things people usually think of when they think of why should Christians be thankful. But what we need to recognize is that as amazing as redemption and forgiveness are, they're, they're just the means. They're not the end. We're redeemed and forgiven so that we might enjoy our eternal inheritance forever in the presence of God. Redemption and forgiveness are just a means to a far greater satisfactory end. And because of that, they were necessary. Redemption refers to a release from captivity through paying a ransom. Right in, in the ancient world, when a soldier got captured, his family could ransom him as a POW and bring him back home if they were willing to pay the price necessary. And this is what Christ did for us. Except Christ did this when we were his enemies. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Not while we were part of his family. It wasn't until that ransom was paid that we became adopted. And closely connected to our redemption is the forgiveness we receive. And actually, the words redemption and forgiveness are um, connected. Forgiveness refers to the release from guilt, the pardon we receive, or our acquittal. So the one leads to the other. The paying of the ransom leads to the acquittal or forgiveness. So it's very important for us to recognize that forgiveness does not simply mean that 
God just chooses to forget the sins that we have done and not hold us hold those sins against us anymore. All right, the word used for forgiveness is much more substantial. Right? We when we say we forgive a person, we simply mean that we're just going to forget about what they did to us. Like, okay, no big deal, we're we going to move on. But the word that's used here is a legal term. It carries more weight than just forgetting about sin. Because on account of our sin, we were in bondage to Satan. We were destined to the wrath of God. And Christ paid the price. He didn't, we didn't just get forgiveness. Christ paid the price so that we could have forgiveness. By dying in our place and by paying our price, he paid it completely. That's why we could continue to sin as Christians, but because it's been paid in full, we will still no longer taste any wrath. As it says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for any who are in Christ. If a person is in Christ, there is no more debt, period. No further obligation. Their account with God is completely cleared forever. They're declared righteous. And Jesus, when he wanted to illustrate this, he used a parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? Jesus knows all of our sin. He knows all of our debt. And this is how he chose to illustrate it. He takes a man who was indebted to his master for 10,000 talents. That's, that's a just roughly equivalent to multi-millions of dollars of indebtedness. There's no way that you could pay that back. And that's why Jesus had to die. There was no way anybody could pay back what they owed to God. And so God did not simply wipe our account clean. He sent His Son to pay the price for our redemption. And anybody, anyone, no matter how great a sinner they have been, no matter what crimes they've committed, anyone who wants to repent and trust in Christ for salvation can receive full pardon for their sins. Forever. Well, if there's no further obligation, if that, if that forgiveness is eternal, one would ask, well, why would a Christian then want to obey? Well, it's because they want to. Romans 6.17, Christians now obey from the heart. They obey because they love God. Their hearts have been changed. They used to live for themselves. Now they live for God. They want to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? What, what was once a burden and a threat, like following the law, rules, obeying God, that was a threat and a burden. Those, are, those things are, are no longer threats. They're appealing. We want to obey. Now, we don't always do it very well, but we want to. I think similarly, you think of a person who wants to climb a mountain. You ask a mountain climber, why did you do that? Well, because they wanted to. But isn't it hard? Yeah. But the joy of doing it far surpasses the threat of the difficulty. 
or running a marathon. People do those things because they want to, not because they have to. Joyful, thankful obedience in a Christian is the evidence that they have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And this is why Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. After a bout with uh, severe illness, probably meningitis, at the age of two, Helen Keller was left deaf and blind. The world she had known for all, all her life all of a sudden went silent and completely black. And through the assistance of her teacher, Ann Sullivan, she eventually learned to communicate. In fact, she went on to graduate from college and she became a well-known author and speaker. She even learned how to um, hear people, so to speak, by just putting her hand on their lips and she could understand what they were saying. But despite her immense losses and the, the constant challenges that she faced every day of her life, she was deeply thankful. She writes this in her book, The Open Door. For three things I thank God every day of my life. Thanks that He vouchest me knowledge of His, good, of his works. Deep thanks that He has set in my darkness the lamp of faith. Deep, deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to. A life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song. She claimed that, that, that so much had been given to her that she didn't have time to think about what, had, what she had not yet received, what had been denied her. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be grow in our awareness of what we have received so that we're not consumed with what we don't yet have or what we've never been able to receive. Lord, most of us have not face the losses of, of people like Helen Keller. But Lord, all of us have at one time been fast bound in sin and nature's night. And Lord, since that day that you opened our eyes, you shined into our night. we have experienced blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to increase our awareness as individuals in a church so that we would be defined by thanksgiving. That even in the great losses, we could say with Job, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.